we are living Groundhog Day. This, like, it's literally exactly the same thing. This in particular, like, that section in particular, like, I mean, I've never been to any of the young Democratic Socialists things, their meetings, but I was like, this is exactly it. <laughs> no, this is, this is frustrating. Yeah. It's very frustrating. I, like, it's just frustrating that we're doing the same thing for decades. You know what breaks the cycle is when we read shit like this and we're like, oh my God. Like, you've been doing this and we have answers. Like people have been thinking about this and there are, there are answers already. So where do we move now that we have those answers is where we should be. The part where she talks about how the U.S. government wants to silence and wants to take down these revolutionaries, what it made me think of is like when you, it's like, basically, it's not just killing individuals, it's you just erasing the memory of an entire collective. Yes. Institutions survive because they are so bureaucratic and have such meticulous memory. Keep Like memory is so important for institutions. And so if you deny that people can't build their own institutions because they don't have the memory from to which they can base it on yeah and like what this is like her diary right this is her autobiography because i mean I'm, I'm sure she didn't just sit down and write this off the top of her head or maybe or did she i don't know i would imagine probably a lot of stuff was kind of like yeah compiled over time which is why like I don't know. I feel like a lot of the times I'm like, you know, who are we to think that like our voices matter or that we like have anything to say, but we might just be the only people writing it down that would help. That's a good point. Yeah. I feel like a lot of times I'm just like, what? I don't know. I don't know anything, <laughs> but at least I guess to document the things that are happening is very important. And she's, Another thing that struck me is, like, she, especially on her, like, um, on the court, her statement, I'm no philosophy major who can tell you the types of reasoning and the, all the types of fallacies. But her argument was very well constructed. Very clear. Like, when we think about, like, the, like, rules of good writing, using ethos and logos and logic, and, like, she appealed to all of those. She appealed to emotion. She appealed to reason. She appealed... and. And all of this for what? So she would not be gaslighted. Literally. It's just to be like, I understand where you guys are coming from as random jurors and seeing only things on like New York Times or Washington Post, but understand what has happened to me and what my perspective is and all the shit I've seen. And now like, tell me whether you think that this is reasonable. And it's still not enough, right? Like... I mean, she was acquitted on that, but it's like she's still a political refugee, essentially. It's not enough. I don't know. One question I was thinking about, like, after having read everything was, some, like, kind of what you were talking about first, but, like, what does progress even look like? Like, because I feel like it doesn't seem to me like what we have now is progress. Like, in some ways, yes, we don't have, like, segregated I don't know drinking fountains and stuff like that for some parts of the U.S. we don't have segregated schools and segregated housing some emphasis on some um 
and we've had you know a black president and stuff people can there can be exceptions who make it to these positions but in terms of the reality of people's daily lives what progress has been made it's this vision of history that is hammered into us it, it is a it goes this way, right? It's like a diagonal, always growing. The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. He was wrong. Yeah. It just goes in circles, but in different ways. And it hits you every time it comes back. Yeah, and like, if we stop seeing history as this thing, like, oh, if we have a Black president, then suddenly it'll be easier for black people have access to x y and z and then and then like it'll like lead to an avalanche like yeah i feel like that's exactly i forget where in the podcast they talk about it but i think they were talking about a very similar idea of just like it's almost like this idea of trickle down um rights like similar to trickle down economics it's like okay we start with the black president and so by trickle down like then all the black people are going to get more rights and more opportunities and that's just obviously not the case yeah that's the logic yeah trickle down yeah i don't know at the same time the thing about it i feel like for me as i've been thinking about like this this book and also that podcast over the past week is also like (laughs) um i don't know like what else what else can we do like as like Obviously, black faces in high places does not work. And like using and like in the podcast, it obviously talks about the failings of black, um, I guess, like black dollar and like black buying power and stuff like that. And just like the notion that, oh, if you just buy only things from black people, blah, 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 it'll be okay. But obviously, I'm at least in the US, the percentage of people in the country who are black is so much smaller than everyone else like you could never reach parity even if everyone had the same amount of money we could never reach parity with the amount of white dollars or at least non-black dollars in the country so then it begs the question like what else can we do and i honestly don't know like i i still like share all the stupid things that are like buy from black owned restaurants or like buy black owned hair brands because it's almost like well what else i don't like i don't want to be giving like (laughs) even Feel like sending the thing in the group chat where it's like all these different black hair care places that are owned by white men it's like i don't want to be giving my money to them when i know that other black people are doing the same thing but at the same time i you have to recognize the failings of like that it doesn't end there so i think i guess that's part of the progress is answering that question of like so what what do we do like how do we do it the the part where you said that, that black people are a minority in the states, I is definitely something that I I I hadn't been considering because in Brazil black people are the majority, mm. and so I think the answer becomes a lot more clear. Yeah, a lot easier to envision. Mm-hmm. But you're right. I like that you kind of ended it with the part about Cuba because I think it really gave this really heavy, sad reading and more hopeful. Um. I thought it was really interesting when she said that the people there didn't identify as like um, African, but Cuban, Mm -hmm. and that they had created or like repurposed or like reclaimed that identity. Because just like 
what you're gonna go back to Nigeria like right I'm gonna go back to Japan no <laughs> makes sense <laughs> like yeah I mean at the, like that's also it at the end of the day like I'm American <laughs> and like at the end of the day you're also Brazilian you know like this is the culture that you know <laughs> yeah like I don't know we have to I guess talk more about what justice what justice looks like particularly for the people who are infringing upon our right like the rights like when she was talking about that man who came back and hadn't dismantled his own racism I mean like I don't care what he thinks I just care what he does yeah Mm -hmm. I really think like neuro and psychology could be repurposed to understand like this like like the like mental strains and like leaps of of like getting justice Hmm, of getting justice what do you mean because for me like when I think of someone who did something really bad someone who wronged me or wronged a lot of people I don't necessarily want to see them like burn at the stake right I don't want to see them necessarily suffer or their children suffer the thing that for me is the most important is recognition of harm caused an apology I don't know if that applies to everyone else but for me, that is what um, makes um, the biggest impact and what I think is like when I'll be like, yeah, justice is For example, the lady who ran over me, I don't want her to go to jail. I don't want, I don't, I even don't really want her to pay me. I just want her to apologize and be like, I'm sorry. You did something wrong. Yeah. And that is the hardest thing. Like, you know, you can kill someone, you can take their money, you can take their land. I feel like, um, I mean, you weren't necessarily super involved in this last summer, but like, you know how I was doing that stuff around like restorative justice. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's very much about that of just like acknowledgement of harm. And then I guess a ter- determination of like what, what needs to be done, um, but on the part of the victim for them to say, this is what I want to happen. And I just, how do you get someone to recognize the wrong that they've done to you? That's, I don't know, that's the hard part. Like, if people simply just don't want to accept it, how can you make them accept it? I don't know. Even in restorative justice, I feel like always they were like, the prep, like, you cannot start this unless the the person who committed harm is ready and willing to be at the discussion table with you. I don't know. Do you feel like, I don't know, because obviously this is written in American context and we've talked a lot about how this applies to the American context, but how do you feel like it applies or do you feel like it applies at all, I guess, to the things that you've seen in Brazil? Um, I think, I think the part where she talked about Cuba and um, her like, trying to understand race in Cuba versus her understanding of race in the States Mm. sounds a lot like how I hear Americans describing race in Brazil, which I actually think this is something we should try to find more resources for, for like future reference Mm. is I know a lot of how Americans react to race relation, Like when they see how race is structured in other countries and like, Oh, this is what I thought. This is how I reacted. I don't see a lot of um, people from other countries going to the States and being like, Oh yeah. Like, Oh, I didn't realize I think that's that would be very interesting, especially as we talk about like the 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 width of like non-white ca- categories. 
or like all these people in between like mulattoes colorados etc are just black people and so i think it would be very interesting to see um yeah more discussion from people like other third world people i guess who are coming to the united states and then having to deal with a more black and white um definition of of race yeah it and it just expands your imagination, right? Your ability to convey of, of a different world. Same with just reading about how like healthcare, like how like movies and events are all like almost free in Cuba, how people don't pay taxes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and like, I, I, you know, I have a taste of what that's like because I've lived in the US and then I've lived here where I have access to free healthcare. Mm-hmm. And, um, public transport is very reliable in Sao Paulo. And, you know, I have like, I can get into places for half the price because I'm a student, like all these types of things. Mm-hmm. So I guess that resonated a lot. But the one thing that was different was when she was talking about how racist, like not that they eliminated racism, but like kind of implied they had eliminated racism in Cuba. And in Brazil, it's very much like the way she described it. It's like, you know, some people won't even identify as black. Um, there's like a whole range of skin tones, but racism here, it's not as structural it is as structural it's not as explicitly written on paper like in the u.s Mm. does that make sense like there's no like three-fifths yeah the u.s has a lot of historical rules like as it comes to one three-fifths or like uh redlining who can buy houses loan Mm -hmm. etc that's not the case in brazilian history it's just we've had so much instability so many constitutions so many um regimes that it's there's not like a continuity, like there's not a, a continuous narrative that is um, made mainstream the same way that in the U.S. you can point that and say, oh, it's the same constitution. Like in Brazil, it's very easy to evade it by being like, oh no, but that wasn't the dictatorship. Oh no, but this was, you know, like oh, Brazil wasn't was wasn't a country then. Like, so do you do people do you think people still feel the compounding effects even though they just don't have the written documentation? Oh, for sure, for sure, for sure. No, like I, I mean, I it's just as bad as the systemic part of it is just as bad, if not as worse as the United States. Mm. But I think Brazil still feels like it's at a point where it still needs to prove that racism exists. Ah, okay. I see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like that race exists because everyone keeps calling Brazil post-racial, but blah, blah, blah. They do love to point to Brazil as a country that's (laughs) post-racial. Yeah. And that just, you know, in a little, like, if, it, if we're thinking of, like, a game of Ludo, that just brings us, like, 10 casinhas, 10 place, positions back in the discussion. Because you, you have to, like, you have to even justify the fact that you're talking about it. Yeah, you're still talking, like, you're still having the discussion that race affects my day-to-day life. Which is totally different from the conclusion that Asada Shakur took. Yeah, it is very interesting. I feel like understanding um i don't know i'm trying to think of when i first really like fully grasped the idea that race is a social construct and i feel like understanding the way that race is categorized in a lot of latin american countries definitely helped um yeah because it just was like super arbitrary (laughs) and it's just like so you're a shade one thing actually this is a this is providing a question to me I don't know if you'd be able to answer but like for example because I know a lot of like Latin American countries 
people are so many different shades. People will be different shades and hair textures in the same family. Like they'll be brother and sister. I mean, same in my own family, but obviously it's just like, you know, it doesn't, I guess people, these shades don't interact with our lives as much just because everyone is black. Um, but yeah, do people, will people who are like a siblings, but are different shades or hair textures be given different categorizations of like, this one will be considered mulatto and this one will be considered habao because they're different shades? Yeah. yeah. Mm. No, I know people who are like, who have like a sibling who's like dark skinned and um, curly hair. And then the other sibling has blue eyes mm -hmm. and like straight blonde hair. And yeah, they'll have different categorizations. They will probably have different life experiences. Definitely have different life, life experiences. Um, and I mean, obviously it's a case-by-case -case basis, but they're definitely treated differently. It's just, it's just in general. Yeah. Like they're raised differently. It's, I don't know. I, I like grew up with people in that, like siblings in that situation. And it was sad. <laughs> Mm. it was just like very glaring the difference like you understand race from from like a very young age because you see these things every day and it's also about like how it's even in how their parents are treating them or like mm -hmm. what about the upbringing i'll give an example when i was in church there were these two kids that i would take care of um they were twins they were twins, but like fraternal. Mm. So it was a girl and a boy. The boy, the father was black, the mother was white. The boy was black, the girl was like curly, like, like um, blonde hair, blue eyes. Mm. The way that the church treated these kids, and you could see that it was, a, it, it was a compound effect. It was since they were a kid, but like the boy was hyperactive. He had ADHD. He was treated as if he were like a problem kid. Mm. And he was always be described as like, oh, you know, this kid is like always so rowdy. Like just the way that people will talk about him and treat him was clearly from a position of like, this kid has problems. Like we need to, he's something we need to solve. Yeah. Whereas for the girl, she was super angelic, seen as like a sweetheart. And like people would say these things in front of them, in mm -hmm. front of each other. Mm -hmm. And obviously you're going to create that. You're going to self-fulfill that prophecy. Yeah. And the, the, the boy was very troubled. Like he was very mistreated and the girl was not. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I only came to understand that much later, but it was like, they're probably going to have very different lives. I don't know where they're at today, but they definitely are going to have very different lives because it's something that it's like your psyche since you're a baby. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, issues of colorism, are their own topic altogether as well, their own area of study. Um, I guess I haven't seen, I, I mean, I didn't grow up in the States, so I don't see that much, but from what I hear in the States, it's much more segregated, so it doesn't happen that often, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, from what I've seen in the States, like, it's very much similar. Like, um, the more you can pass, the more people will give you a pass, kind of, more or less um like whatever proximity you can have to whiteness people will attribute better characteristics to you they'll even when i think about sometimes the ways that like people will treat me versus people will treat 
versus the way people will treat um there's a lot of different things that are coming into effect and so like it just it becomes super evident um the ways that a lot of times would be like picked out and made to look like the definition almost of an angry black woman because one there's a lot of things that are happening to her that are not happening to other people so she's calling out things that other people haven't experienced um and so there's that first level of gaslighting because people are like well what are you talking about this is not the case this person didn't do that when that's her experience so that's what it is um and then two i think that if people like i think that even at times when or I were saying the same things, people would allow us more space to say those things than they would have allowed. Like immediately, it's always a guard when somebody has something to say. Um, Would you say that was in the context of like classroom, pregame, social, like like everything? Definitely as it came to social interactions a lot. Um, Yeah, I don't know, like sometimes there would just be like random stuff people give, people give, would give pushback on like, why are you disagreeing with this person about something that you are not involved in or like you didn't see it for yourself so how can you say one way or the other it's just the way that some people are able to catalyze other people around them to vilify others just very interesting yeah yeah it's just i think we have to admit like we take pleasure in vilifying attacking like gossiping like it is something that creates bonds like it's i mean in an i i don't know because in an ideal world obviously i think that i don't know in an ideal world this would be gossip (laughs) but you don't use the same type of like carceral logic quote-unquote of like someone has to be someone has to be punished yeah hmm Carceral logic, that's a good, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and it's, it just feels like today, um, oh, one thing that I forgot to mention, the girl and the boy I was talking about, I'm pretty sure the girl was like one or two grades ahead of the boy. They were really? twins. And like in school, like she was one or two grades ahead of him. Really? Because he had to like redo. Keep taking classes yeah. again. But what was I going to say? Oh, again, why this reminds me, why, like, the struggle for, you know, like, the struggle for justice is universal. This, like, it's it's something that permeates, like, every religion. I've come to believe that it permeates every religion, every, like, philosophy of life. Um, And I draw from evangelicalism because that's where I come from. And the idea that, like, your... Um, presence in it your fight your you know existence is um is related to these issues that are bigger than you and your character Mm. and your value as a person is also related to this issue makes it a lot harder for you to like make sorry makes it a lot easier for you to vilify someone and also make that be like a judgment on their entire being their entire character and their entire value as a person when we like cancel someone um, and decide to like be against someone in general. Mm. I guess that's what carcel, carcel, carcel logic is. 
Yeah. Like it, it's almost like you justify, you can justify uh, disposing of someone because it's part of reinforcing your own moral stance. And their wrong moral stance devalues their- As a person. Yeah. But that's how I feel about a lot of people, you know? That's how you actually feel. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's the hardest part of like, I mean, that's not the hardest part. It's one of the very hard parts of like the, even the notion of restorative justice and stuff like that is like, we're not re seeking revenge anymore, I guess. It's hard to let that go is like, I don't know. Has there been any other type of system that's worked long-term that's not based on revenge? Not that I, I mean, sorry. There hasn't been a system that is based on revenge that has worked long-term. There, there isn't a system that has yeah. worked is based on revenge. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. At least not that I know of, yeah. Um, we should move on to self-help because this is getting really um, self-helpy in a self good way. Self-help? <laughs> <laughs> Let me start like, reading like a, what is it, chicken soup? <laughs> learn to forgive type things. The revolution starts at home. Like, the transformation comes from within. Like, yeah, it's true. Like you, it is. Yeah, it's very true. For people, without circumscribing to neoliberalism. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, and the yeah, the one of my favorite parts is the part where she's like, "Why are these white boys telling the Viet Cong what to do? I want to see some of you try and come back." <laughs> That's like I feel like a summary of our experience at. APWI, Higher Education Institution. Literally. Everyone has something to say. Everyone is a critic. No one wants to actually try anything. Yeah. We just have to do it. Yeah. You just have to do it. People are... I don't know why... I don't know why it is when you get... Maybe it's not only just when you get to these types of higher level things that everyone likes for things to be a discussion. Like... Oh, we, we want to do this. Okay, let's discuss it. And then let's discuss this thing. And let's debrief the discussion. <laughs> <laughs> like, let's just do it. <laughs> it's the analytical framework. Um, you're right. Praxis. That's what praxis is. I, yeah. I think it, it has a lot to do also with, like, the things we've been talking about with Watami, right? It's like, we can't win. Let's just do it. <laughs> Honestly, yeah, you can't win. Just keep going. Mm. But I definitely feel like Princeton has, like, just my time in college has definitely paralyzed me a little bit. I think you get used to having to go back and forth at a certain point rather than just do. Which actually, maybe it is just something about, like, the, t the position that we're in. Like, we are so structured and, mm -hmm. like, do a lot of processing and thinking. Yeah, which isn't inherently bad, but not necessarily. But just sometimes when it when it hinders you from actually doing anything at all. Yeah, or like you become dependent on having a structure, or that feedback. I think that is also part of it. Like literally, when we were talking about like people will hire Princeton grads because they just work hard for no reason. I think it's literally <laughs> trauma. Like it, I honestly think it is <laughs> because people haven't learned to exist outside of the feedback of you're doing good job or you're smart. Like the need for validation. Yeah. I don't know. Do you feel like you had an idea of what your self worth was based on before you came into Princeton? Yes. 
wasn't good, but it, I had an idea. <laughs> Did you? I feel like, yeah. Like, I don't know. I remember at some point in freshman year, I was driving someone home and they were like, I always respect, like, I appreciate how much you respect yourself. And I was like, yeah, because I'm the shit. Like, <laughs> I feel like, <laughs> I think at a certain point in high school, I was just like, listen, <laughs> no, like, I don't know, maybe this is also just being a Leo, but I always think to myself constantly, like, if you don't think you're the shit, who's going to think you're the shit? So, like, what's the point? Like, who am I working for, <laughs> if not myself? <laughs> it is that. It's like that, yeah, like, th- they need validation because that's what makes them happy. Like, that's what makes them feel like a sense of Other work. people look at what they're doing and, and to get that external validation. Yeah, it's very important to some people. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's why every that's why so many people are so insufferable there because that's all they they're so fixated on. Yeah, it's it's also sad because it's not like a switch, you know. You can't just tell someone to be like, no, you just have to find it internally, or like, I don't know. I just like find it easier to live with myself because I just do. Like, I didn't do anything to like earn this mindset, you know. I think it's just it's compound like things that happen in your life. I feel like. Um... I don't know, maybe, like, I feel like it's also part of the discussion we've had a lot about, like, knowing when to pick your battles and, like, just growing up in an environment where you disagree with a lot of the things that are happening. Even if it's not big things like genocide, it'll be, like, small things like the religion or, like, whatever, you know? It's, like, you learn at a certain point that obviously the external markers of what is normal or, like, what are good things don't apply to you or, like they just don't fit your mindset or your framework of thinking. And so you have to, at a certain point, be like, so I have to follow my own guiding. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think that a lot of people don't learn that because they're meeting all the benchmarks in their environment. Man, that, okay, that goes back to what, man, this, this, these texts are so good. Like, I feel like we've talked about like, macroeconomics history politics like, <laughs> culture like self-improvement but this goes back to what asada shakir said about um the the ah okay she talks about what we have left like the poem where she's like what's left what's left what's left and i think that what you're getting at like obviously we don't have to worry about genocide and like these really horrible things but like we both can agree that we grew up in a position of like being uncomfortable, not being, not being like nurtured and like struggling to be who we were. Struggling to find out who you are. Yeah. And that is what made us stronger. That is what made us, you know, people that like, I like who I am today because of that. Mm -hmm. But the con of that is that when you don't grow up in an environment where you are nurtured, you are stunted. Like you, like I'm just th- looking at all these kids who like at Princeton are able to like enjoy all the benefits because their daddy and their uncle and their grand uncle went to school there and they know everyone there already. They went to a prep school that prepared them to like take all these exams and thrive. And they already came in knowing which dance groups they wanted to be in, which theater troops they went, all, knowing the professor's names, like mm-hmm. they are thriving and like getting so much more from that experience. Than they but they also don't have a backbone. They don't know who they are. Yeah, and, and so that, that makes me think of, like, in a larger context of, like, the Cubans, when she was, like, the Cubans were, like, don't exaggerate. Like, we know the U.S. is bad, but don't exaggerate. Like, yeah. what about their kids? Like, 
after, you know, if we do a revolution, if we're successful, the left is obsessed with losing because we just lose, lose, lose. And there's like this purity thing. It's like, oh, Chavez is not pure enough. Fidel Castro is not pure enough. Um, uh, DPRK is clearly not pure enough. China's not pure enough. Okay, fine. But like, if you actually go and do it, and if you win, and then you have kids, and you, those kids have kids, and they live in a society where, yeah, we have free healthcare, we don't have these perfect, beautiful skyscrapers, but like, and they start taking these things for granted, even though that those are the things that let them thrive. How do you preserve that? You know, how do you like do both of those things at once? The struggle that makes them grow, but also like the nurture. So that they won't try to revert back to a system that we have, like the U.S. If we do succeed, the next generation, how do you preserve it? Yeah. I, that's a good question. I don't know. We are. <laughs> These are our questions today. What is progress and how do you preserve the progress once you've gotten there? VR. VR? Virtual reality? Nostalgia pills. You have to make people relive that shit and be like, oh my God. <laughs> Honestly, did you ever read The Giver? <laughs> you have to do that where you transfer your memory to the next person and be like, just so you know what it could be like. <laughs> yeah, I think it'll have to be that. Or like there has to be a better uh, education. I think that's it. Mm. There has to be a better education in the public system that's like, before this happened, before we instated this current system, this is all that was happening and this is what they were doing to people and that's why we don't do that system anymore. Isn't that what McGraw does? Isn't that what the public schools... No, but this is what Asada is saying. This is what they're not teaching us. Like, I mean, for one, we don't have, at least in the United States, we don't necessarily have, like, a current system versus a past system to look to besides like Jim Crow and slavery, I guess. And then the current system where those are quote unquote, not a thing. Um, But yeah, even then they're not really teaching you accurately about the true nature of what has transpired. I I feel like we do learn a version of that though. Like we learned that the Brits were bad and no taxation without representation. And like that, like there was no democracy. And because of the enlightenment, now we do all these things and they're great. And in the Versailles people were super corrupt. Like we learned that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah, that is true in terms of like the monarchy versus the current democracy. You know what I learned today? Um, you know, so you know how like we designate like a certain collection of ideals as left and then another collection of ideals as right? Mm-hmm. Do you know where it comes from? No. <laughs> so during the French Revolution, there were the Jacobins. Mm. And the Jacobins were um, the, this like society where people would, you would pay a little fee to be part of it. And people would come and write speeches. There'd be little club, like little subgroups within it. And they proofread each other's speeches. And they'd all come together and sit in a circle and like give speeches. And like, it was super cool. Like a super, super, super cool like forum. And what happened was that like when you go and there's like an open platform for you to sit, if you sit next to a person and you turn to that person and say, what that guy's saying is full of shit. And the person's like, no, I I actually really like this person. The next thing, you're not going to sit next to them. You're going to sit next to someone who agrees with you, right? Mm-hmm. You can look at it and it shakes your head and you're like, oh my God, together. Like, yeah. oh my God. And so what happened was that you would have all these people who like had these ideas sitting on the left. Yeah. 
all the people who agreed on one side and all the people yeah. who agreed on the other side. And then everyone in the middle in the middle. And uh, that's how we got the designations of left, center, and right. Whoa, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. You know, one thing that I feel like I need to know more about actually is like, is the political systems outside of left and right in many other countries. Because I, yeah, yeah, I just don't know nearly enough. It's just, we keep thinking it's a spectrum. Like, it's not a spectrum. It's a fucking, like, 3D orb. <laughs> yeah, it's just different constituencies altogether. Like, I don't know. I mean, actually, I don't know, really know much about how the, ma- like, what is the makeup of, like, Congress in Brazil, for example? Like... In Brazil, it's a multi-party system. It's actually really interesting. So, so during the Cold War, the U.S. imposed its own uh, government system into most countries in Latin America. So, like, there's, like, the Senate, there's the con- Congress, there's the Supreme Court, there's an executive branch. Um, and so we have Congress, Senate. The Senate, so it's multi-party. So, um, and then they form coalitions. So it's a little bit similar to, I guess, like, the British system. Mm. Um, but then there's always like a dominate dominant party um Mm. brazilians there's a complex in brazil called vida lachismo so vida lata is a mutt and we brazilians call themselves mutts because they are like mutts of many races like this portuguese yeah and and they look at america as like like purebred really country interesting um, and so the Viralachismo, um, the con- the con- uh, complex, the complex of Viralachismo is that Brazilians will always look at the U.S. and think that the U.S. system is better. So Brazilians will always point at the bipartisan system and say that because the party, there's only two parties and they're so well defined, you know exactly what to expect from someone when you vote for them. Whereas in Brazil, because there's a multi-party system, there's like thousands of parties. You could register a party like in, in 24 hours. Not 24 hours, but like it's very like there's so many parties. No one knows what they stand for. So a politician can on his campaign say, I'm gonna open more schools, and then the next day he'll just like end abortion. You know, like there's just no Uh, so it's almost like in this I see what you're saying. Cause it's like the the right or like the GOP or Republicans here, it's like they have a laundry list of things they generally Mm -hmm. support. And it kind of all falls in line where it's like pro-life, pro-gun, blah, 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 like that type stuff. And then the right or the Democrats have their own list, laundry list of things. But it's for the multi-party system, it's like you might pick like, okay, we're pro-life, but we're anti-gun, but we're anti-school, but we're pro, Mm -hmm. I don't know, (laughs) postal system. Exactly. So So, in the end, in the U.S., you vote for a party, mm -hmm. basically. In Brazil, you vote for an individual. Mm-hmm. And it's much harder to hold an individual accountable than it is to hold a party. That's what the Viralata complex is, mm-hmm. which in some t- sometimes is true. But then you look at the U.S. bipartisan system and it's a mess. It's a mess. I feel like part of it is people have put too much confidence into the, the two-party system. Like, you'll just vote Democratic. Actually, I don't know. Maybe this is changing now. Um, but like, yeah, I would say when I was younger, at least, especially like Obama's presidency and stuff, people just vote democratic, just straight down the ballot, but they don't actually know what any of the people are, Mm. what their values are. 
or what uh, their platform is. So do you feel like people in Brazil are more uh, knowledgeable, I guess, about the individuals and what their platforms are? Nobody's knowledgeable anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) But for example, I think that um, it's a lot easier, like the Democratic Party and the GOP, who's going to take it down? No one's going to ever take it down. Like you, it's going to exist forever. And they're just going to every year just slowly go more right, 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 right. Whereas mm-hmm. in Brazil, like the PT is like kind of like everyone's kind of like, you guys really fucked up. So we're going to support all these, uh, a lot of like leftists are like, we're going to support these other left wing parties. And they're going to form coalitions that are going to challenge the PT and hopefully maybe one day much sooner than that you know much faster than in the u.s we'll be able to have a new left like a new coalition of the left rather than just having to be democrat Hmm. I i don't think this is a very common thought amongst americans but i feel like more and more people at least in the democratic party are very are getting very tired of the way that the democratic party operates i mean especially with this current election given the way that everything has turned out um i think people are very frustrated with that so i don't know i don't know if it would ever happen in my lifetime but i things are obviously uh, shifting a lot right now (laughs) um whether we would move out of a a two-party system or maybe replace one of the parties with something else as long as an elect- there's an electoral college, you won't, right? Oh my God, I always hate, I forget about that thing. Yeah, we won't. It's not a democracy. Like the US is straight up not a democracy. It's not. There like, was a term that they taught us in some point in like fifth grade that was like, so this is what it's actually. It was something like a, something, like something republic, but it's not actually a, a democracy. Democratic I republic? I. Like, the Democratic is because voting happens, but it's a republic because, like, you have a delegation of individuals who do the actual voting. It's not because, it's not a popular democracy or something like that. Oh. Yeah. Oh, last question. Why did you choose this? Why did you choose this? Because I've never read this biography before, but it just gets talked about so much um, when it comes to the idea of revolution and and like especially now as everyone's trying to read like different revolutionaries especially like black feminist perspectives asada shakur is uh one of the like seminal texts so yeah that's why i picked it out (laughs) 